1: Thanks so much for joining in today, which is September sixth, two thousand seventeen. We have a wonderful guest today, Cindy O'Meara. She's a nutritionist, an author, a documentary maker, and her book, Changing Habits, Changing Lives, is is a fascinating read. We're also going to talk about her documentary, What's with Wheat. She has um, started a lot, well, basically she's got a a pantry of products, but uh, she also has a company that exports to over 23 countries, and I'll I'll let her talk to us about that. She's also building a 60-acre organic food bowl in the Sunshine Coast. She is from Australia, and she's speaking from there today. Hi, Cindy. Thanks so much for joining us. You should be in bed, Thanks, shouldn't today. you?
2: <laughs> no, 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 I'm all right. It's it's early morning. I'm been for my swim. I've had my breakfast. I'm I'm at work. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> oh, I do do some three a.m.s at time, but today is oh. just a perfect time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we'll have the best of you then.
2: Yes. So you've been a nutritionist for over thirty years. Yes I have Um, and seen a lot of changes in that 30 years um, not only in people's health uh, in the food industry uh, but the knowledge that we now have about nutrition so um, it's it's wonderful to see and it's wonderful to see that people are now um, going back to real foods and they're they're staying away from the packaged foods and the low-fat foods and the manipulative foods and the man-made foods so I you know when I first started 30 years ago people thought I was mad talking about what I was talking about back then <laughs> but now everybody's talking about it it's very mainstream mm-hmm. so it's wonderful
1: Mhm What got you started
2: on that path Well you know I think it was probably my 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 father and my mother so my mum was uh, uh the oldest of 11 children And her father was an organic farmer. And they weren't called organic back then. He just refused to use the chemicals. So he lived in Iowa, USA. He was a corn farmer um, and he disagreed with that chemical revolution that was happening and he remained organic. He had a two-acre plot that was to just feed uh, his family of 13. So my mum was always you know he, she had a father that was very much into organic foods or, or foods without chemicals, and then mum made everything from scratch and then my dad was a pharmacist who then became a chiropractor and very much believed in that the body was an innate intelligence and giving the right resources and stop interfering with it, so give it food, sunlight, exercise then um, it can be healthy and so I was brought up with my mum making everything from scratch, my father having this philosophy. And I'm actually 57 this year. I'm trying to think how old I'm going to be. (laughs) I think 57 this year. You lose track as you get up there. And, um, yeah, it's terrible. 57 young. Yeah, 57 young. And I've never been – I've never needed an antibiotic. I've never needed any painkillers. I've not taken one medication. Um, in the whole of my life and that was because that's how my my dad brought me up and my mum and dad brought me up and then I brought my children who are now in their late 20s up exactly the same way and they've had no need for medications as they grew up so I, I guess that's what got me on the path and then I went to university at in at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to ski, <laughs> um, uh, which I yes. did. Yeah, I wanted to ski because in Australia there is no university that is near the ski slopes. So, being <laughs> you know having an American mom and and having that uh, ability to go to America and go to university, I, I chose Boulder, and. I had a class, um, I was doing pre-med, and one of the classes was anthropology, and I was intrigued that it was food that was part of our evolution, you know, hunter-gatherers, agriculturalists, so I learned this, you know, back in the 80s, the early 80s, and I thought, I know what I want to do, I want to be a nutritionist. So I came back to Australia because it was was free to go to university in Australia. So I came back to Australia and I finished my Bachelor of Science majoring in Nutrition, about to go and do my, it was a diploma back then of dietetics. And I started to realize that it had nothing to do with what we used to eat and everything to do with modern food like margarine, low-fat, the Dietary Guidelines were all about uh, pa- even packaged foods, you know, they believed lean cuisine and f- and healthy choice, which wasn't a healthy choice, was, was what we should be feeding. And then when I saw when people were really sick and the formulas that they were feeding people, like the peg feeds um, that they were feeding people, I just went, how can people get well on a synthetic diet? Mm-hmm. So that was where I got my, you know, I, I opened my eyes and went, this isn't what we're meant to be doing, and especially after doing a twelve months in anthropology and realizing the evolution and the, and the food that we ate, and so I kind of decided I couldn't be a dietitian. Went back to university, did two years of human anatomy where I cut up cadavers and realize it wasn't the dead people I was concerned about, it was the live ones, and (laughs) and just just decided to open up, I was a nutritionist at that point, just open up a practice, and and started to teach, uh, when people would come to me, real foods, like, okay, you're eating breakfast cereals, you're eating low-fat milk, you're eating sandwiches with cheese, and at night, you're having lean cuisine, or whatever, healthy choice, whatever it was at that time, let's you know, slowly introduce the new habits in and let's change your breakfast and the type of milk you're eating and the quality of the food you're eating. And when you did that, you would have amazing results. People would just flip. And, and I remember I had this beautiful um, older farmer come in to see me and he, I explained what he had to do and he had his hands crossed and his legs crossed and, and I thought, oh, I'm not getting through to him at all. And about a week after I'd seen him, he rang me and he says, Miss Lovett, and that was my maiden <laughs> name, he says, I need to come and see you again. And so I'm thinking, oh, gosh, he's going to tell me off or something. You know, like I was a 23-year-old mm-hmm. and he was, you know, at that point in his 60s and late 60s, early 70s. And he comes in and he says, I want to tell you a story. He says, I'm a pear farmer. and Five years ago, my pears were just the worst they could possibly be. And I decided to go back to my traditional ways of growing pears, without chemicals. He said I stripped everything away and I got rid of all the chemicals and I went organic and natural and I have the best pears in the district. And he said that was five years ago. And what a fool I've been that I didn't think about doing it to my own body. And Mm. so he decided to follow me and he changed everything in his diet. He and his wife changed everything in his diet. All of his symptoms disappeared. He had a numb right leg. He, he wasn't feeling good. He was tired. You know, it just what we think is normal, but it wasn't. And, um, and I, I, I remember that that, that was, in, you know, especially as a young 20-something-year-old, it was really important to hear that and know that I was on the right track. But you know what the scary thing is now, Denise, is that um, we no longer... Um, can do that and expect healings to happen. That is scary. And, um, yeah, and that's the scary thing is that that people are getting sicker and sicker and you can't just rely on that beautiful good nutrition. How come? Well, people's guts have been eroded uh, and they have – so we we survive on – Basically, a a good gut that has lots of bacteria. We symbiotically live within the realms of symbi you know symbiotically live with these bacteria. And if they get eroded, we're not making our B vitamins. We're not digesting our food. We have no vitamin K. Our aromatic amino acids aren't being made. Our fructose doesn't get um, digested, and lots of things like this happen. And and it is because of uh, generational effect. It's because of our agricultural practices. It's because of we, we go for a medication before we even think about lifestyle changes. Mm-hmm. So what's happening is that we are eroding something that no matter how much good nutrition you put in, if that's eroded, you are not going to get well. Mm. So this this is what we've come to, and that's what I was saying in the beginning. We've I've seen so many changes. Like I've been studying nutrition for 37 years and I've been consulting for 31 years. I'm going on 31 years, and this is what I have seen. Uh, it's no longer just here's the diet. There are other things that we, we need to do, and one of them is that we've got to heal the guts and heal the microbiome and get it thriving again in order for people to thrive as well.
1: And how do you heal the gut?
2: <laughs> oh, sometimes it's very easy. Sometimes it's just a matter of uh, feeding foods such as fermented foods um, and foods that will heal the gut such as bo- bone broths uh, or slow-cooked meats Um, And for a vegan to hear this, uh, you know, it's very hard because we know that these are the things that we did traditionally. So if we Mm -hmm. go back to our hunter-gatherer days, you know, they say that fire, uh, there's a book out called, um, I think it's called Cooked, not Cooked. It's, um, look, I I can't remember the exact name of it, but it's by a Harvard University uh, professor And um, he wrote a book saying that he believed fire made us human and it was because of our ability to cook foods that uh, we didn't have to eat all the time and then we started to become more dexterous and we started to use our brain more and it was because of that cooking and releasing of calories and nutrients that we didn't have to eat all day long and we were first of all we used fire and then there was the belief that um, we used water so we might have created some clay pots put water in and all the meat and the bones would have gone in and it was a, a, a way that we consumed foods for thousands and thousands of generations now we did it as a result of culture and tradition but now we're learning that that type of cooking Um, releases many wonderful amino acids that helps the gut wall heal if there has been a problem now what would have been the problem back you know in the hunter-gatherer days they didn't have agricultural practices they didn't take antibiotics they didn't have any of those issues but what they would have had is that they may have had a volcano erupt and heavy metals may have spewed out or Uh, they may have had it could have been some sort of bacteria in the food that they ate and they had you know diarrhea and vomiting and and completely wiped out their their gut and their gut bacteria so they would have known that this is was a traditional thing to do and now science tells us oh wow you know this type of cooking helps heal the gut so We would have then healed the gut that way. So we now go back to our traditional ways in order to heal the gut. And we're starting to realize that Mother Earth uh, has things within it that um, help us heal And it's almost like I heard somebody say um, recently on a podcast, I heard somebody say, it's almost like Mother Earth knew we were going to do this and it prepared for us to do this and we know that this actually will start to heal the gut. And these are things like um, the fulvic acid and colloidal minerals that are extracted from peat. So things that are very deep into the ground will also heal the gut as well as the old preservation of foods such as, um, you know, our fermented foods. So we, we preserve foods by fermenting it. So we, use sour, we used to make sauerkraut. Um, we also, every culture, seem to have a preserved food, such as kimchi. So these are full of microbes that if we continually put it into our gut, even though they're transitory, they will help other gut bacteria, um, you know, multiply and help digest our food and, and help us get more nutrition.
1: Would probiotics take the place of some of these things and heal the gut?
2: Yeah, look, I'm. Um, I think there's been a lot of research on probiotics, so it's almost like when something starts, everybody gets on the bandwagon, and you know they put out uh, a bunch of probiotics. But there was some research done, and it was by Dr. Libby. Uh, she's just known as Dr. Libby and she's a researcher and she did some research where um, over a six-year period where she was giving probiotics to uh, children and measuring uh, you know what their microbiome was like and even though she was giving like say bifidus she didn't notice in six years that the bifidus increased in in the stool samples so there is this belief that probiotics by themselves uh, are not the answer and that we need prebiotics and prebiotics are the food that comes with the probiotics so when you have sauerkraut it comes with cabbage or if you have kimchi it comes with onion and carrot and cabbage and so there, and if you do kefir, you've got um, a dairy. So you, that's your, pro, you know, your prebiotic, mm-hmm. and a prebiotic is the carrier of the probiotic. So much, much of our probiotics are killed in the acid stomach. So if you think about the the stomach, it's there to protect us from parasites and um, and bugs. It, it's at that acidic mm-hmm. amount, as well as it helps us digest um, proteins and and other foods that come into our, our body and break them down. And when you're just giving probiotics you you're not even sure that they're even getting into the small intestine and then down to the large intestine. But when you consume foods, they may not hold with you know the bugs that are in there; they may not hold, but what they do is they support the bacteria that are in there already, and then the prebiotic helps feed the the, the good bacteria that are actually within the gut. And if you're feeding them white flour and white sugar and things like that, they, they don't survive on that. It's the bad bacteria that survive on that. And I, and I shouldn't call them bad. It's a, it's a balance. So if you're feeding mm-hmm. them white sugar and white flour and uh, you're feeding them refined foods, then you will get an overabundance of bacteria that uh, are more harmful to you as opposed to... The the bacteria that help symbiotically work with you in order to be the healthiest, you know, human that you can possibly be.
1: Interesting. Hmm. Really interesting. Let's talk about your documentary and what's
2: with wheat. Yeah, you know that was that evolved because you know I I did nutrition and I would say to people, okay, you you're eating wheat. Breakfast, morning tea, lunch, afternoon tea, and dinner. There's more than wheat around. Why don't you try other things? So, instead of having breakfast cereal for breakfast, let's let's have some eggs and omelette, or maybe have rolled oats. You know, have a porridge, or try kasha or congee. So these are traditional, uh, like long cooked grains. So you you slowly cook them over a long period of time, and it breaks down all those anti nutrients that might be holding in the in the All um, the minerals, so you know I would talk to them about that and I'd say, "Great breakfast we don 't have to have wheat and then i 'd say, what about morning tea let 's have some fruit for morning tea or some nuts or some seeds or something other than a, a mm-hmm. muffin or a cookie and then for lunch mm-hmm. i 'd say, "Well, instead of having a sandwich let 's do a salad and and, and so I'd try and re- at least reduce the amount of wheat that they were consuming. And then I would say, and make sure you have organic. It's really important to have organic wheat. So that was the theme that I had from the 90s right up until about, I think it was about the year 2010. And I was, I, like I said to you, I was a fairly healthy, I've been a very healthy person. I brought up my kids that way. I was doing everything right. And then I got into my late 40s and I started to gain weight, even eating the same food. I started to get a tight throat where I'd be clearing it all the time. I had uh, a persistent lower back pain, and it was 18 months of persistent lower back pain. My husband's a chiropractor, my father's a chiropractor, my sister's a chiropractor. I should not have had this, mm-hmm. and there was no structural issue. They just said, look, you're just inflamed, and I went, okay, so then my right hip started to give me grief, where I'd get up, and it'd be really sore, and still I warmed up and, and could walk. Uh, I was having anxiety at 3 in the morning. My skin was really dry and itchy. My hair was, I couldn't grow my hair. It was dry all the time, so I kept it short. Uh, it looked—it was, wow. was like, what is happening? This isn't mm. 50 surely. It can't be what this is about. And so being a nutritionist, I, I thought, well, it's got to be something that I've been eating. So I went on mm-hmm. a, a very, very strict elimination. So, I eliminated everything but very, very small pieces of lean meat, lots of green vegetables, um and a couple of like pieces of fruit and that could have been an apple or citrus, so very low glycemic fruits is what um I decided to do and in ten days, my lower back pain disappeared, my right hip pain disappeared, tightness of throat disappeared. Uh, what else, any ache and pain, no anxiety, I had this unbelievable clarity of mind. I I didn't even know I had brain fog. I just was very clear. I had energy where I wanted to run and skip and jump. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And um, and that was in 10 days. And so I thought, right, keep going. And in in three weeks, I'd lost nearly 20 pounds in weight. And that never came back, by the way. And everything was doing really well. And I thought, right, well, I can't just live on small amounts of food. I've, I've got to introduce food back in. So I started to introduce, you know, everything back into my diet. And at about the 10th day after that three weeks, so I'd been off wheat for nearly four weeks at this point, I introduced a, a, a sourdough bread. And I, it was like everything came flooding back. My low back pain, my right hip pain. I woke up with anxiety. It was, it was horrific. And I woke up and I got on the scales and I had gained nearly a kilo. I've got a, 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 so two pounds probably. I'm trying to think. I think it's 2.2 pounds to a kilo of weight overnight. And I knew that that could not be laid down fat. That had to be inflammation. Well, I had all the signals that there was something wrong with wheat so I began to question that because I knew, because I'd done anthropology, I knew that it was very, very important that grain and wheat was in our life. Mm-hmm. It was integral. You know, it was an integral part of us going from hunter-gatherer to agriculturalist to where we are today. And so I went on a bit of a Uh, I guess, a research binge. And this was before Wheat Belly was out. This was before uh, Grain Brain was out, so by Dr. Pearl Mutter and by William Davies. So those books weren't out at this point, but they soon did come out. And so through um, reading those books after some time and listening to Dr. Tom O'Brien and Alicia Fasano and um, quite a few people, I started to realize that, we were having real issues with wheat. Now, I'm from the 60s and 70s. There was no one that I knew of that had celiac disease or a wheat issue or anything like that, except for one um, of my friends. Her sister had been diagnosed as a celiac, and I went, what's that? You know, I had never even knew what it was. Mm -hmm. But apart from that, I didn't see many people with these issues. But I was beginning to see a trend, especially the late 80s and more so in the last decade. And I, I couldn't believe that I could have a problem with it. And so it was that realisation and what was done to wheat. So it's not wheat that's the issue. It's what we've done to wheat um, that is the issue. And so I, 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 my husband said to me after three or four years, he said, you're going to write a book on it because it's getting worse. And I mm. said, no. I don't really want to write a book, and he was the one who said, "Why don't you do a documentary?" And we knew nothing about documentaries at that stage. We had, you know, I, I watched them. I watched them all the mm-hmm. time, but I didn't know how to sure. do them. And so, it was not only a learning curve about wheat, but it was a learning curve about, well, how do you do this? What is, what's the theme you want to do? How do you want to do that? So, uh, once we'd done that, uh, I remember um, I, I did a video. I knew the people that I had learned from that I wanted them to be in my documentary. And so I created a video and I told them my story as briefly as I possibly could. And I said, I'd like to create a documentary and you were part of my learning and I would really love you to be in the documentary. I sent it out Christmas Eve about three years ago now. I sent Mm -hmm. it out Christmas Eve and I had in 24 hours, I had three key people say yes to me. One was Dr. Terry Walls, one was Dr. Natasha Campbell-McBride, and the other one was Vandina Shiva, you know, the most amazing activist in India. So I had these three amazing women that had said yes to me. And so then I told everybody else that I wanted on my documentary that I have these three women and I'm keen for them to say yes. And everybody said yes, but Dr. William Davies. He was said, look, I'm doing another you know, I'm doing something similar, and my time will not allow me to do that. Mm-hmm. So I missed out on him, but his book is in my documentary. I made sure because, oh, you, know, he was, you know, he was important. His information was important. Even though I felt it was just a part of the story, it was still an integral part of the story. So um, we did talk about his discovery um, about wheat.
1: And why don't you inform our listeners on, on what that discovery is
2: yeah so it, i i start the documentary uh as a, it with a history lesson so the importance of wheat in the diet and how we would use the wheat um, and how we prepared the wheat and the preparation was a fermentation so there was obviously a knowledge that if they ate the grain raw that it may cause an issue. So there was this, you know, tradition and culture of fermenting the wheat. And I'd like to tell you a story about the Australian Aboriginal people, our Indigenous um, group, Mm -hmm. that have lived in this land of Australia for around 110,000 years, is the belief. And there is archaeological evidence that they have used grain for at least 65,000 years here in Australia. But one of their grains is called Nadu. And Nadu is a, is a very small grass that they would collect and they would grind it, soak it, wash it and cook it. It was part of the tradition of doing it. We had explorers come to this country around 150, 200 years ago. They noticed the Australian Aboriginal people gathering nardoo. They believed that they could eat nardoo, but what it did to them is it slowly killed them. And oh. the reason it slowly kills them, yeah, it has an it has an anti nutrient in it um, that and stops the absorption of B vitamins and the utilization of it. Then, so they die of a B, a B deficiency basically. And um, we had very famous explorers that this happened to, they were called Birkenwells. And And everyone thought that Birkenwells actually died from lack of water and and lack of um, food, but they actually died from eating the Nardu, um, which made them weaker and weaker through their exploration. So the Australian Aboriginal people knew that, that they had to prepare this grain that way for it not to kill them. And it's amazing. The Australian Aboriginal people eat a lot of foods that are toxic, raw, but when they're prepared properly... They are fine. So now we come back to the wheat grain. It was always believed, uh, you know, before breakfast cereals came about, that this was the way you did things. It was a long, slow ferment. And wheat wasn't always available, but when it was available, you know, um, people lived on it. And if you have a look at urban life, let's say, in England, when they moved from agriculture into the cities, a lot of people... Ate this grain and they ate it in massive amounts, even though it was prepared. It was one of the only foods that they could consume, and that's when you saw the plague come about and all these diseases come about. So we didn't probably twig back then. But we're beginning to twig right now that the preparation of these grains, and especially you know, wheat, because it's a big part of our society, needs to be prepared properly. So number one, we eat way too much of it. We don't prepare it properly. Uh, it's in many, many things. So we find it in or um, probably 75% of packaged foods and it could be as overt as it says it's wheat or it could be an additive, a preservative, a filler, a, a starch, a binder, a flavor. Uh, it's found in our vitamins and minerals. So it could be an excipient or the vitamin could be made of it, such as ascorbic acid. It's found as a, an excipient in our medications. It's found in cosmetics, Um, it's also in makeup it's in personal care products it's in shampoos Look, it's everywhere and so we're exposed to it we don't prepare it properly we eat too much of it and then we get to the 80s so we've got breakfast cereals happening we've got them adding vitamins to it they take the germ out they take the bran out and then they put in some synthetic vitamins and, and and a few at that and then they might put in some minerals and and then they and then and basically we get to the 80s and the world such as India and Pakistan is starting to you know they're not doing well there's a lot of poverty there's a lot of hunger and we hybridize the wheat grain to grow more um, and to mechanically harvest it uh, uh, you know in, in mass amounts and that starts in India and Pakistan in the 70s and by the 80s it's here in Australia and in the US this hybrid grain it's a miracle we can grow it in mass amounts but of course then it becomes weakened because we're not fertilizing the land properly pests start to come in weeds are there and we start to use more and more chemicals so in 19- I don't know, I, like I, If I go back to when the chemical revolution started before the hybridization of the grain, it started probably about 1938 and 39 in the Midwest of the U.S. where they used arsenic and lead on the corn and wheat fields. Um, then it was DDT up until the 70s. Uh, and now glyphosate is used as a herbicide as well as a bunch of other uh, chemicals.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: But I think what happened after the hybridization, which is what um, Dr. William Davies talks about in his book, uh, Wheat Belly, there is also a new practice that starts in Scotland around the 80s and really starts in the uh, around the world uh, in the 90s, the late 90s. And that is in wet areas of the world where they want the grain to dry and ripen together, so harvesting is easier, they start to use a chemical just weeks before harvest in order to do this. This chemical is also used on other grains, not just wheat, to dry other grains. It's used on legumes. It's used on seeds. Uh, so it's used to increase yield and to help the farmer. So there's less chaff, more grain um, and easier harvesting and everything ripens together. And the name of that chemical is glyphosate. Mm-hmm. And glyphosate is the uh, active ingredient in Roundup. And Roundup is also sprayed on genetically modified Roundup-ready crops. So, you know, there's soya, There's BT corn, um, and there's a list of them that are now Mm -hmm. called Roundup Ready. And uh, there are four patents on this chemical. The first patent was it was a chelating agent. The second was, and this was by mistake they they figured this out, it became a herbicide because um, where it was used as a chelating agent, they noticed that it was killing the grass, and so they realized that it was a good weed killer. So it then got a patent on weed killing, then the next patent was it was anti-parasitic and antimicrobial, and then the last patent that's just been um, put on it last seven years, which um, was 2010, it's a biocide. So all of a sudden we've got this chemical that's exponentially growing in use. Our councils are using it, sports grounds and everything like that, and we realise now it's an antimicrobial and a biocide, which means it's killing, and we go back to where we started it's killing and eroding slowly the bacteria in our gut and the bacteria and the microbes in the soil so it's making our food not able to pull up minerals it's making them sick we have to spray more and more chemicals on it we're consuming those foods we slowly erode the bacteria in our gut not only with glyphosate but other chemicals as well as antibiotics and other drugs and PPIs and antacids and and now I come back to where I started was just giving good nutrition is just not working for for people. They they're doing everything right. They don't trust nutrition anymore. But we, you know, what we have to do is, is now say, okay, where can we find food without glyphosate? Uh, how can we reduce the amount of antibiotics that we're taking? What can we do other than taking PPIs? And antacids and PPIs are proton pump inhibitors, um, which reduce the acid in the stomach, which then allow parasites and all sorts of bugs to get into our system, creating absolute dysbiosis of the microbiome, which means dysbiosis, meaning um, the bugs are now out of balance and Mm -hmm. they cause more havoc to your body than healing to your body and give you, giving you the digestion that you need. So I guess what I've done is I've just given you the whole history nice lesson. Nice background.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, of wheat.
1: So what do you do to remedy it? I mean, obviously you try to find food that doesn't have glyphosate in it, but um, what do you do?
2: Yeah, I, look, I think that that's a, a really good question. And for somebody who's in crisis, it's almost like they they have to change everything immediately. And I notice people around the world um, have wonderful programs to help people like this who are really in crisis. So Mm -hmm. what's happened is that we now see an increase in celiac disease. We, We see an increase in wheat allergies. And not only just wheat allergies, we're seeing dairy allergies, we're seeing multiple food allergies and sensitivities growing. In actual fact, in Australia, in one decade, we saw a tenfold increase. So we're actually seeing more and more people becoming anaphylactic to, uh, you know, foods, not just nuts and not just peanuts, which it used to be, but even Mm. dairy and wheat. So we're seeing an increase in these allergies. So um, we're also seeing an increase in something called non-celiac gluten sensitivity which was termed in 2012 so not many people believe this even exists but there's more and more evidence that you may not have the symptoms of celiac disease but what you will have is that you will have the symptoms that I had so it might be backache it might be hip pain it might be anxiety it might be depression it could be thyroid issues like it 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 hasn't got an autoimmune Uh, I guess face but there is something happening and we do not have the biomarkers at this point to know if you do have non-celiac gluten sensitivity and the only way you can figure it out is if you go off wheat for an extended period of time and see what happens to your symptoms exactly what I Mm -hmm. did Mm -hmm. you know I had no diagnosis I just knew that by not eating wheat I felt amazing but by eating wheat I felt terrible So it's called non celiac gluten sensitivity. And then we have an increase in autoimmune diseases. You know, like you would never have heard of autoimmune diseases in the 80s. They existed. I know that because my sister was diagnosed with uh, five autoimmune diseases. So I knew about it in the 80s. I was not taught about it in university. But now I hear, oh, I have, you know, Hashimoto's. I have Graves. I have Addison's. I have rheumatoid arthritis. I have, you know multiple mm-hmm. sclerosis, we, we now realize that these autoimmune diseases are just exponentially growing. In actual fact, I think Dr. David Perlmutter says that 17% of Americans have been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, and he believes that that's just a very small amount of people that actually have the disease. They just haven't gone to their doctors to have it diagnosed. So, you know, if you are in this crisis situation, then... You know there are there are programs and protocols out there, and and we offer them uh, here um, at Changing Habits. So, um, ChangingHabits.com.au is a place where you can come and and learn about programs and protocols to help you through this. Uh, we're just about to put out a uh, in October a phenomenal gut healing uh, program. It's intense. I don't say it's easy, but we're mm-hmm. having phenomenal results with it so you can do that but if you're not in that crisis situation it's about saying okay how can I at least start to reduce wheat let's just start there and that's why I wrote my book changing habits changing lives Uh, see I wrote that back in 1998 and it was about okay let's look at breakfast this is what breakfast cereals are. This is how they're made. This is what they do to the body. Let's give you some alternatives. It's, it's an education program about doing it. Mm-hmm. And then the next, it, it might be salt. It might be the salt you're eating. It could be the sugar you're consuming. It could be the type of bread you're consuming. So we slowly go through each habit and making one change and then building on that and going to another change and, and just keep building on it. And And people are astounded by the results they have just by starting to change small habit changes and then collectively and let's say it takes you 12 months collectively realizing that it wasn't that hard i can do this here's the education this is how i do it um and i and i'm and i can live for the rest of my life in a state of health as opposed to in a state of crisis Mm,
1: excellent excellent advice
2: And it's about going back to real foods, Denise. It's about eating foods that um, our ancestors ate. And I'm not talking paleo here. I'm not saying you have to go off grains or dairy. It's about looking at the quality of food that you're consuming. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to... One of my my dreams at the moment is I would like to actually do a documentary on dairy and call it What's With Dairy... And the reason I want to do this is that while I've um, finished my wheat documentary, I'm now doing a lot of research into the dairy industry. And it's really interesting. There's some amazing research coming out of Europe at the moment that when animal husbandry is old-fashioned animal husbandry, where the animal is outside, the animal gets to eat grass, um, and let's say it's a dairy cow and it, it produces milk not on a... schedule of the way we get dairy cows to do it but they have their cow they have their baby cows the baby cows are not killed if they're male
1: Mm -hmm.
2: so if they're brought up organically no chemicals and things like that one of the allergens in milk that is seen as an anaphylactic allergen actually contains when these cattle are brought up organically and you know ethically this allergen actually holds the mineral iron. And when that's presented to a person that has an anaphylactic reaction to that protein in normal milk that we see as normal milk now, they don't have that reaction. It's non-allergenic completely. So when we look at the quality of our foods, then we can eat more variety. We don't have to just stick to... You know, being one type of, uh, you know, type of diet, we can actually look at all of our foods and eat everything, but make sure it's good quality. So, if we're going to look at wheat, what's the way that we used to consume wheat? Well, we used to consume wheat, basically, the old-fashioned wheat. So, the oldest wheat is called einkorn, and that's spelled E-I-N-K-O-R. N. That was our oldest wheat, and then Emma wheat was next, and then uh, Kamut or Khorasan, uh and then there was Spelt. So we've we've had several um, naturally hybridised wheats that have come along, and that's because two grasses, you know, hybridised together naturally, and these are the wheats that we can go back to, but. Make sure that we don't eat them like we eat them today, but eat them with the old traditional sourdough breads and um, the fermenting processes that help break it down. And then make sure that your gut bacteria and your gut is working. And then we should be able to tolerate all of these foods. We shouldn't have this problem. So. Uh, It's about quality more than quantity. I never talk about calories. I never talk about how much protein, fat, and carbohydrates you can eat. I talk about, well, what's the quality of the food? If the quality of the food is there, then there are no issues about um, anything else as long as that quality is there.
1: Do you eat any type of wheat products at this stage?
2: If I do eat, it was, it's interesting you should ask me that because for many years I couldn't even eat the traditional products. I, I would, I, it was funny, my pain went from my lower back um, and if, if I ate wheat, I would get a small, my small finger joint, um, my little finger joint would ache. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> but that was Danielle. my, yeah, my, that was my body telling me you're not there yet. You can't do mm-hmm. that yet. Now, it's been seven years um, since I went on this journey. So now I can eat a loaf of... Uh, not a loaf, but a piece of bread that is made. I um, One of my food lines is Emma wheat. So I have a, a beautiful Australian farmer here that produces Emma wheat for me. We grind it with stone every three months and then we sell it through our, our store. So I um, can eat emma wheat that has been traditionally fermented so what Mm -hmm. i do is i do a 10-day ferment basically on my bench whereas i've just got water and wheat and i just keep letting it being fed and then i add all of my other ingredients for bread which is only fat and salt i don't add anything else to it and then and more flour and then basically i let that rise a day punch it down let it rise another day punch it down let it rise another day punch it down and I know some people are going I don't have time for that and I get that but it only mm-hmm. takes a second a day to punch it down it really doesn't take any time at all and then you put it in the oven and huh. I know that there like here on in on the Sunshine Coast there's a a beautiful baker that actually does it for you so oh there are more and more artisan bakers that are, are starting to realize the value of doing this and the amount of people that want the product. And, so, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and bread should never be cheap. If you're buying bread at a dollar, um, a loaf, mm-hmm. then you know that that is cheap bread that has not been... It, it, it is cheap bread and it's cheap to the body and it will make you sick. But if you're consuming these other types of bread... Um and they do cost. Um because look at the of what we what we do. It's an expensive product. It's not a cheap product, but we've made it cheap because of what we've done to it. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Yeah. Look it it was interesting, Denise. I when I was in the US I was on a television program and it was down in San Diego and I was asked um to bring in uh what I wouldn't eat versus what I would eat. And of course, what I wouldn't eat, I don't go and purchase, so I don't know the value or the price of it. So I, I went to Whole Foods and I got what I would eat, and then I went to—I can't remember the name of the grocery store, but it was like the cheap version of a grocery store—and I collected um, seven, uh, six items: so bread, crackers, mm-hmm. uh, pasta, and I—I I picked the cheapest because I didn't want to—I—I I, I don't want to contribute to the finances of these companies that are killing us. So I picked the cheapest product I could possibly cheap pick. And I didn't really add it up in my head, but when I got to the counter, I had six items and it cost me $7.50. <laughs> and that scared me. That mm-hmm. really scared me because I thought, no wonder people who can't afford the real food go to these products because they will fill you up. But then what ends up happening is that we don't see the real expense of these foods. These people then get sick. They're then in a health system that gives them medications,
0: mm-hmm. um,
2: you know, and then, you know, they're a burden. They become a burden on the on the labor force, on the system. Um, they can't contribute to society. Those foods have got chemicals that are sprayed on them. Our lands are becoming, you know, wastelands. You know, the nutrition is not good on the land. So we actually think we're paying $7, um, but the cost of it is far greater, not only for your health but for the planet. So, Mm. you know, I I was a little – I I just thought, how do you convince somebody to now go and spend $50? (laughs) Probably not $50, but let's say – Um, It would probably be $20 for exactly those same products, but ethically grown um, without chemicals and without additives, reserves, and flavorings. It's it's a tough call. Yes,
1: it is, and it's it's become even more complicated because we've had uh, food inflation here in the States over, I'd say, the past four years. Um, We're paying a lot more for our food than we ever have before. And I'm not specifically talking organics at all, yeah, that's just what's I happened.
2: I noticed that Denise when I was there last eating out used to be fairly reasonable in the u s
1: Mhm
2: mhm, but I ate out and it i it was eighty dollars for two people, mhm, mm-hmm. and then I had to put a tip on top of that we don't We don't tip here in Australia the the people in the who own the restaurant pay the staff a very I good, see. yeah. So a good
1: wage. Yeah.
2: Your, I agree with you. Your food has become very, very expensive cons- compared to what it used to be like.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, if I go out to lunch and go to one of the restaurants that's a chain, let's just say. By the time you finish, you're about twenty five dollars, mm. twenty to twenty five. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and that's uh, a lot.
2: <laughs> mhm. Mm. So
1: you know, it is a quandary that that we're well, in.
2: Look, it is a quandary, but we can get out of it. And um, what I find is that people who seem to be financially able to do this are time poor. People who financially can't do this are not, and this is just a generalization, are not as time poor. They have a little bit more time on their hands. So I say to them, I say, how about creating a garden in your backyard or on your veranda? How about getting some chickens in instead of having dogs and cats that cost you so much? Put <laughs> chickens in who will eat your scraps mm-hmm. and produce mm-hmm. eggs for you and on occasionally you could have a chicken that was you mm-hmm. knew was okay. And this is the way, I remember my grandparents, you know, I'm from the 60s and 70s, so my grandparents did this. We, they all had gardens, they all had chickens, even goats and things like that. And I think for people who have the time but are financially not able to do this, Get, you know, this is what we may need to go to is, is, is go to gardens. There's actually a really good documentary. It's, it's quite a few years old, and it's called Homegrown. And it's about this man who's, I don't know if his wife dies or she leaves, and he's left with three children, very small children, to look after. And he's, he lives in the middle of L.A., around the freeways, and he starts to grow flowers to sell to the local florist. Mm-hmm. And then he starts to grow food. And it, it, it's phenomenal the amount of food that he grows on his very <laughs> small California, LA um, mm-hmm. piece of land. Like mm-hmm. enough to feed his, his kids, enough to sell to the market. So here on the Sunshine Coast, we have this amazing um, lady um, who only grow, only buys from home gardeners. Mm-hmm. And they can... You know, because if you have an orange tree, you can't eat all the oranges on your tree.
1: There are so many. I know there's there's a there's a trend here in California, um, and it's farmers markets on weekends, and sometimes maybe one day during the week. So these um, you know organic farmers will you know some of them will drive four hours to come with their produce to sell, and you know, in in areas where there just isn't any land to grow anything, it's a nice alternative to have available.
2: Uh, look, I think it's a wonderful alternative. And the more people that support these small farmers, the more mm-hmm. the small farmers will come back. Because mm-hmm. what's happened is that there are, like, what I see um, in the U.S. as an outsider, I come into the U.S. a lot. And what I've seen since the 80s, is a growing number of people that are homeless or mm-hmm. live um, in substandard conditions. Yes, yes. And, and I was speaking to someone and they said to me, it's because they've been taken out of the rural areas where they may have been on the farm helping on the farm. And I think if we become, as individuals, supporters of these farmers, we're going to see more and more small farms that will like, grow the produce uh, keep it in the local area uh, and and try and and keep as many chemicals off it as we possibly can. And it's about mm-hmm. us as individuals either growing those foods or supporting those farmers that are growing that food. And, and hopefully we'll see a trend that changes the, from where we are right now. Because I, I sure hope so. I don't think it's good. We can't keep going. We can't continue I to know. do this.
1: I know. Well, it's been just lovely having you really has and um, listeners can learn more about you and your programs at your website correct
2: yes they can they can go to changinghabits.com.au and that will give them a lot of information there's lots of blogs on there and lots of programs and protocols and they'll see the food that we have, and we we do send to the U.S. and around the world, um, if they can't find those foods anywhere else, you know, like we 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 do send here. but it's all shelf stable foods, and it's all one ingredient. So okay, um, we're not we're not about you know um, selling any fresh food or anything like that because I have my 60 acres and I sell that fresh food to my local mm-hmm. market, but this mm-hmm. is about shelf stable food. If That's a lot of acreage. Watch- yeah, yeah look we only we're only using at the moment the top 20 acres where oh, we've geez. um got 600 trees that we've planted up there um we have 15 cows um and we have 22 chickens um Amazing. and it at, at the moment it feeds at the moment it's just feeding the people that I employ so I employ 23 mm-hmm. people So it's just feeding them at the moment because we've only had it two years and we're just, you know, beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, But we'll work on the other 40 acres uh, and (laughs) and get more produce in for our local area. Good Good for you. you. Oh, thank you, Denise. I love it. I absolutely love going up there. (laughs) And then um, if people want to watch the documentary What's With Wheat, they can Mm -hmm. go on Netflix. It's on Netflix North America. If okay. you do not have Netflix, you can go on Amazon, iTunes, it's it's all over the place. Or you can go to my website, whatswithwheat.com. Um, and I say that slowly because I, I find people think I'm saying something else with my accent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they think mm-hmm. I'm saying about our weight, um, not our wheat grain. So whatswithwheat.com.
1: Well, Cindy O'Meara, I thank you so much for being on our show. I've learned so much from you. And just so you know, I gave up wheat quite a while ago. <laughs>
2: oh, wow. Good. And feeling and better for it? And it's not easy.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> the the weight just starts to peel off. And, um, you know, it's it's hard. Although I had given up packaged foods probably, oh, gosh, 10 years ago. Um So I mostly am a a whole food eater. But, yep, yep, sure
2: do feel a whole lot better. (laughs) Mm. And I think the more you you take it off, you take it away from your life, the more you don't want it and the better you feel and you never want to go back there again. Mm -mm. Mm-mm, mm-mm,
1: not at all, not at all. Well, thanks again. Uh, Hopefully we'll have you back on you know, maybe next year at some point and check in with you and see what else is new.
2: I'd love that, Denise. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much.
1: (laughs) Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right. That was Cindy O'Meara from Australia. An extremely informative show. Uh, You may have to listen to it again just to kind of take in everything that she had to say. Um, Please join us again. Please join us again next week. Bye-bye.
0: We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have. And follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit gotcancernowwhat.com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What?